Father, we are grateful for a chance to be able to be in your word and to study, once again, the truth about, about the end. We realize, Lord, that um, you have it all mapped out perfectly. And while we might not know every detail, we know, Lord, that you're in complete control of everything. Tonight, we're going to see that even all the more as we understand your sovereign control over all things, um, even the Antichrist and uh, the false prophet, how you have allowed them to do what it is they're going to do because you have an ultimate plan that's for your glory. Tonight, may we be encouraged and strengthened, Lord, as we understand your word. May we be uh, fit for tomorrow to be used by you until you come again. We pray that it it'd be tonight, if not tonight, tomorrow. Lord, as soon as possible, we ask that you come quickly, that we might go home to be with you and rejoice in your presence. We pray in your name. Amen. Amen. If you got your Bible, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I'm going to read to you these first 12 verses just to set them in your mind, and then we'll embark on understanding more about what they have to say. Now, we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter, as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in the accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence, so that they will believe what is false, in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. You know, deception is, is quite a prevalent aspect of our day. It's always been a part of our world ever since the very beginning with Adam and Eve when they were deceived by Satan. And when I think about their deception, I realize how easy it is for us to be deceived who have a sin nature. Adam and Eve didn't have a sin nature. Uh, they were created perfect by God, and yet they still fell into temptation. They fell prey to Satan's deceptive lies. And so easily, we can be deceived. We talked about it on, on Sunday. Uh, Paul was concerned about those in, in Corinth, that they not be easily deceived. Knowing how Eve was deceived and the craftiness of Satan, he didn't want those in, in Corinth to be led astray from the purity and devotion to truth. He said earlier in 2 uh, excuse me, Second uh, Corinthians 2, verse 11, that he wasn't ignorant of Satan's devices. Paul knew how, how Satan worked 
and he works in a very subtle kind of way, but he's very, very deceptive. And he is the master deceiver. And deception has been in this world since Adam and Eve fell into sin. And Paul is concerned, as he says in verse number three, let no one of let no one in any way deceive you. It's interesting that Jesus in Matthew chapter 24, as he began that Olivet Discourse, said these words in verse number four. See to it that no one misleads you. So as the Lord begins this discussion with his disciples in Matthew 24, concerning the things that are going to come before the end, he wants to make sure that the disciples are not deceived. They're not misled. Well, Paul picks up on the same thing, knowing that these people have been deceived, that they should not let anyone deceive them based on what they already know to be true. And that's why Paul says, look, it's, if it's from some other spirit or some letter or some message, somebody preached something or you, you, you received the letter, evidently they received the letter or these false teachers had come with a letter that, that brought deception. That's why at the end of 2 Thessalonians, he says these words, um, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, he says in verse number 17, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, and this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. To make sure they understood that this really was the letter from him, and not the letter they had received from these false teachers who wanted to mislead them and cause confusion. Because that's what deception does. It causes fear. It causes anxiety. It causes all kinds of trouble. Well, Paul knows that. He doesn't want them facing difficulty and trouble, although they were. They knew they were already involved in persecution. So chapter 1 is all about how to console them amidst their persecution. Well, now, because of the... Uh, letter that they had received that from a false teacher that would destroy their view of prophecy, he's got to correct all that, get them back on track so they understand exactly what they need to know concerning the day of the Lord. And so what Paul does is does something very, very unique. He goes into this long discussion about the rise of Antichrist. And you have to ask yourself the question, why would he do that? There are so many different avenues he could use to prove the day of the Lord had not come. But he chose the route of the Antichrist. He knows that he's already talked to them about this. That's, that's one reason why. But, but he could have said something like this. That's way back in the book of Joel. Joel chapter 2, verse number 30. The Lord says, I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth. Blood, fire, columns of smoke, the sun will turn into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So he could have talked about that. Do you see the sun going dark? Do you see the, the doom and the gloom around you? No. But he didn't do that. He could have gone on in, in Joel, the third chapter, and talked about this, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon grow dark. The stars lose their brightness. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. 
Do you see people gathered in the Valley of Jehoshaphat, in the Kidron Valley? Are they there? Well, if they're not there, you know the day of the Lord has not come. But he didn't do that either. He could have went to Micah chapter four, verse number five, excuse me, Malachi four, verse number five, and said, hey, listen, do you see Elijah? Has Elijah come? Because the prophet said that before the great and terrible day of the Lord, Elijah was going to show. Do you see Elijah anywhere? Well, now you know the day of the Lord's not here. Didn't do that either. Instead, he goes to talk about the Antichrist, the rise of the beast. That's why he does this, because he wants them to understand something very unique. He's already talked to them about this. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is the most profound chapter in the New Testament outside of Revelation 13 about the rise of Antichrist. But he also says in verse number 5, these words, do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things. So evidently, he had already told them about the man of lawlessness. He had already told them about the son of destruction or the son of perdition. And he got that from the Old Testament book, Daniel, which gives you the most information concerning the Antichrist. Daniel 7, Daniel 8, Daniel 9, and Daniel 11 are filled with all kinds of descriptions concerning the rise of the one who comes against the Messiah, the anti-Messiah. So evidently, Paul had already told them about this. So he's going to go back and reiterate to them once again the rise of Antichrist, the rise of the one who comes to power. He could have used a myriad of Old Testament verses. He could have even gone over what Jesus did in Matthew 24, giving them of all the, everything about the birth pangs. Although in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, he'd already talked about the birth pangs and that they were not of the darkness, they were of the light. But he could have gone back and explained all those birth pangs again as Jesus did in Matthew 24. He didn't do that. Instead, he focuses in on the Antichrist. He does that because it's a main theme in Daniel's prophecy. Having said that, I want to take you back to something I didn't cover last week, and that's Daniel chapter 9. So if you got your Bible, turn back with me to Daniel chapter 9, because this is part of what he would have talked to them about concerning the Antichrist. In Daniel chapter 9, we understand that Daniel goes to prayer, and he prays for God to do something really unique. Daniel, taken into captivity in 605 BC. He's been there almost 70 years, and while in captivity, he's reading the scroll of Jeremiah. Because in Jeremiah 25 and in Jeremiah 29, he notices that the captivity, Judah's captivity, would be for 70 years. Well, he's coming to the end of that time. He's getting up in years. It's been almost 70 years. He recognizes that. That's what it says in, in verse number uh, two, it says, in the first year of the reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the numbers of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So he knows that time's almost done. So he goes and he appeals to the Lord. 
And in verse number 19, he says, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and take action for your own sake. O my God, do not delay because your city and your people are called by your name. The Jewish people, the city of Jerusalem, the holy sanctuary, the Jewish temple. It's all about you, Lord. For the sake of your name, listen, answer quickly. So God sends the angel Gabriel. And Gabriel gives Daniel a vision. And the vision he gives them, he gives to Daniel, is a vision that will take care of the rest of Israel's history. This is what it says. Daniel 9, verse number 24. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. Seventy weeks have been cut out. Out of all the history of the world, there are 70 years that have been specifically cut out for your people Israel and your city. Seventy years that have been decreed, that have been determined by me. In other words, God has everything under control. These 70 weeks are seven units of seven years. There's 70 weeks of seven years. How do we know that? We know from the Hebrew word, which talks about weeks, meaning a period of time. Unless it's described, as it is in Daniel 10, weeks of days. But they're not called weeks of days. He leaves out the word days because they're weeks of years. So there's 70 units of weeks. In other words, it's 70 times 7, equaling 490 years. Daniel knows that. He understands that. He grasps that. He knows that Israel is about to be restored after 70 years of captivity. Jeremiah 29, 10 and 11. You know, and that, that what's going to happen is that you're going to go back to your land. And I'm going to restore your land back to you. He knows that's going to happen. But what's going to happen into the future? He gets a vision from Gabriel. And he tells him there have been 70 units of seven years, 490 years that have been cut out for your people Israel. And those 490 years coincide with 2 Chronicles chapter 36, which deals with the fact that Israel did not keep the Sabbath. That's why they went into captivity for 70 years, because they didn't keep 70 Sabbaths, that is, every seven years which of their 800-year history, there were 490 of them that Israel never kept the Sabbath. So God says you're going to go into captivity for 70 years. Now he says 70 times 7. 70 years of seven weeks have been cut out for your people Israel and your city. He says to do six things. Number one, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. In other words, within the realm of those 70 weeks, this is what's going to happen. 
there's going to be an end to the rebellion and transgression of your people Israel. There's going to be an end of sin. And there's going to be atonement made for their iniquity. That in principle all happened in the first coming of the Messiah. When Christ put an end to iniquity, when Christ made atonement for sin on Calvary, in essence, in principle, he made an end to sin. That won't happen until your salvation's complete when you end up going to heaven, when you go into the kingdom of God. But those first three deal with the first coming of the Messiah. Then he says, he's going to bring in everlasting righteousness. Well, that's not going to happen until Jeremiah 23, 5, and 6, where the Lord, our righteousness, sits on the throne of righteousness and rules in Jerusalem. To seal up vision and prophecy, that will also happen in the kingdom, and to anoint the most holy place. The most holy place, phrase used 39 times in the Old Testament, every time refers to the holy of holies in the temple. And yes, there will be a millennial temple because Zechariah tells us and Jeremiah tells us that there's going to be a fourth temple. So Gabriel makes it very clear. There are 70 70, uh, years of seven weeks, 490 years. And what's going to happen by the end of those 70 weeks, all this is going to take place. Then he says this. So you are to know and discern that from the issue of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. In other words, there will be 69 weeks, but he breaks them up. He breaks them up into seven, seven weeks. He breaks them up into 62 weeks, which gives you 69 weeks, and then there's one week. So you have seven weeks, you have 62 weeks, then you have one week. Why does he do that? Well, he wants Daniel to be wise and be discerning. He wants him to understand what's happening. So he gives them the exact date in which all this is going to take place and when it, when it begins. If you're going to be wise and discerning, you must know when everything begins, right? So he says these words, you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah, okay? So the question is, when was that decree given? In Ezra 1, Ezra 6, and Ezra 7, there are three decrees given, one by Cyrus, one by Darius, and one by Artaxerxes. But all those three decrees are given to rebuild the temple. There was only one decree that was given by Artaxerxes in Nehemiah 2, verses 1 to 8, which was to rebuild the walls and the streets of Jerusalem. And so the Lord makes it very specific which decree it's going to be before it ever happens. So you understand this. And so they're able to, to grasp what's, 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 what's happening. So he can begin to count up the times and the years. So he begins to understand all that's going to take place. So from 
Nehemiah 2, verses 1 to 8, when Artaxerxes gave a decree. He gave it in 445 B.C. He began to rule in 465 B.C. So in Nehemiah 2, in the 20th year of his reign, which would be 445 B.C., in the month of Nisan, specifically on March 14th of 445 B.C., was when the decree was given. So now you know the begin date. Now you know when it all began. Now you know when the 490 years begins. You follow me? Okay, if you're not, don't worry. In the fall, I'm going to take you all through the book of Daniel verse by verse and unfold it all for you so you can see it from the very beginning of the book of Daniel to the very end of the book of Daniel. That's our topic. When we start in September, we'll do the book of Daniel. So you need to understand exactly what's taking place here. And so he says, I want you to discern and I want you to know that this is going to begin with the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah, the Prince, there will be seven weeks, 49 years. Why would it be 49 years? Well, it took 52 days to build the wall around the city. But it took 49 years for them to rebuild the city. 49 years to rebuild and establish the temple, the Old Testament canon of Scripture, and the streets to be complete. In other words, to the end of the book of Malachi. It took 49 years. That's why he divides it up. 49 years, and then 434 years, so that the end of those seven weeks, there will be 62 weeks, and that will happen when the Messiah, the Prince, will manifest himself. That's the Lord Jesus, the Messiah himself. So if you do all the math, and if you want to know exactly how all this comes to be, Sir Robert Anderson, who was from Scotland Yard, an historian, went through and did all the math and all the sequence of events. It was um, confirmed by... Um, our what's his name, uh, Harold Honer from Dallas Seminary. Um, Sir Robert Anderson's book was called The Coming Prince, and Harold Honer's uh, book was called The Chrono Chrono Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ. And both of them have done all the studies concerning all the days and all the times and all the hours. Remember, because the Jewish calendar is based on 360 days, not 365 days. We know that from Genesis 7 and Genesis 8, knowing about the flood lasted 150 days, which was five months according to Scripture, and from the book of Revelation that there's three and a half years or 42 months or 1,260 days. So we know exactly that it's all based on a 360-day calendar, not a 365-day calendar. In all their editions, you've got to take out all the leap years, okay? So there's 116 leap years. So you've got to take out all the leap years, you can't add 1 B.C. and 1 A.D. twice because it's only one number, and you've got to be able to do all the 360 days. You come up with 173,880 days till Messiah the Prince would show up at the end of 69 weeks, which would come to A.D. Uh, April 6th, A.D. 32, when Messiah would ride into Jerusalem and manifest himself. That's why in Luke's gospel, these words are said. Verse 37, Luke 19, as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, 
the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice. For all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So this is the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. They recognized Jesus for his miracles, not because of his message. They would hope that he's going to be the king and set up his kingdom. He is their king. They just don't recognize him as such. And some of the Pharisees, in verse number 39, the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. And there are two possible interpretations of that. Now, yes, Israel would remain silent. After this day, they were completely silent and have been silent ever since. In other words, they have not praised Christ as their Messiah since this day. So if they remain quiet, the stones will cry out. Some would believe that if you've been to Israel with me and you begin to descend the Mount of Olives, that there is a huge cemetery on the Mount of Olives. That cemetery is over 2,000 years old. And some would say that the stones crying out would be the stones that are laid on top of the, uh, of the tombs there in Israel. That could very possibly be. We know from Matthew's account in Matthew 27 that at the death of Christ, remember, there was a great earthquake and the stones began to scream. Why? Because there were many souls that were raised from the dead but not, did not enter Jerusalem until after Christ had, ra- had been raised from the dead. Others would say no. It's the fulfillment of the prophecy in the book of Habakkuk, the second chapter, which says... Verse 11, surely the stone will cry out from the wall, and the rafter will answer it from the framework. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and founds a town with violence. In other words, it refers to the Chaldeans and God's curse and judgment upon them because they would not follow the Messiah and recognize who their Messiah was, the Lord God of Israel. And so judgment was upon them because they were guilty of violence and guilty of the judgment of God. So like the Chaldeans, the nation of Israel now was was being judged by God, cursed by God, because they would not recognize their Messiah. And so the stones will one day cry out, that is, they will one day recognize their Messiah when he comes again, but not till then. And so the Bible says in Luke 19... When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known in this day, what day? Well, the day that Daniel the prophet had prophesied, that Gabriel had given to him. On the 173,880th day, at the end of 69 weeks, Messiah the prince will show up. Messiah the prince showed up. He presented himself to Israel. They cried out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. If you had known on this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they've been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. In other words, Christ rebukes them because they should have known the time. Christ rebukes them because they should have known the day. Why? Because of what Daniel the prophet was given through the angel Gabriel concerning 
the 69-week prophecy. Now, if you go back to Daniel chapter 9, it says these words. It says, Messiah the prince, there will be between that uh, seven weeks and 62 weeks, 69 weeks, it will be built again in the plaza and the moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, that's the 62 plus the seven, the Messiah will be cut off. The Messiah will be executed. And sure enough, the Messiah was executed just six days later. And have nothing, and then this says this, and the people of the prince who is to come, who is the prince to come? Not the Messiah. But the people of the prince to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. That's what Jesus did in Luke 19. That was fulfilled in 70 AD when the Roman governor, Titus Flavius Vespasian, came in and plundered the city in 70 AD. Now remember, Jesus said, listen, because you did not recognize the day of your visitation, what Daniel prophesied is going to happen, just like he prophesied it. And it happened in 70 AD. So it says, these words, and its end will come with a flood, and to the end there will be war, desolations are Determined. In other words, again, this is decreed. This is cut out. This has all been determined. That the prince who is to come, that's the Antichrist, his people. Who are his people? Rome. Remember, in the end times, there's going to be a revival of the Roman Empire. There's a good argument to say that the Antichrist will be a part of that empire and that the Antichrist will be a Gentile and not a Jew. How do we know that? Well, the Bible says in the book of Revelation, the 13th chapter, that I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. It's the chapter that deals with the Antichrist. John sees the beast coming up out of the sea, having 10 horns and seven heads, and on his horns were 10 diadems, speaking of authority and power and intelligence. This is this beast that comes up out of the sea. question is, what's the sea? Well, some would believe it's the Gentile nations. How do we know that? Well, the Bible says in Revelation 17, verse number 15, these words, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. So the harlot, false prophet, would sit on the sea, the waters, and they are from the the Gentile nations of the world. Others would say that the sea is representative of the abyss. So the Antichrist, who was demon-possessed, comes up out of the abyss. My guess is both are right. The Antichrist very possibly would be a Gentile and not a Jew. You say, well, how is he ever going to convince the Jewish nation that he's their Messiah, if he's a Gentile and not a Jew? That's a great question. But remember, he is the master deceiver. And if he can deceive the whole world into worshiping him and following him, he'll be able to deceive the Jewish nation as well. 
getting them to believe that he is a Jew and not a Gentile. But anyway, back to Daniel chapter 9. He says that the Messiah will be cut off, he'll die, he'll be executed, and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come, that's Rome, will destroy the city and the sanctuary they did in 70 AD, and that sin will come with a flood, even to the end, there will be war, desolations are determined. Now, you still have one week left, right? You've only got 69 weeks. You've only got 173,880 days. You're still missing one week of years. You're still missing seven years, right? When does that come to be? Here it is. And he will make a firm covenant or confirm the covenant with the many, that's Israel, for one week. Now you have your 70th week of Daniel's prophecy. It says, but in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, desolate even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So in other words, he says, in the middle of that week, there's going to be what's called the abomination of desolation. Jesus refers to this in Matthew 24 when he takes the disciples back to the book of Daniel, referring to the abomination of desolation, where the Antichrist sets himself up as God and desecrates the temple because there is going to be a third temple, one that's built during the, during the tribulational period. We know that from a Revelation chapter 11, where uh, John is told to take a measuring rod and measure the temple because the Jews are going to build a third temple for the anti-Messiah, thinking they're building it for the Messiah. And so all their offerings, grain, all their feasts will be back in play. And in the middle of that time, three and a half years in, 42 months, Antichrist will desecrate that temple and demand that everybody worship him because he will claim to be God. And those who don't worship him, he will slaughter. Those who do will receive the mark of the beast. And they will worship him until the Jesus comes again the next three and a half years. That's Daniel's prophecy. In short, in the fall, we'll go into greater detail. But what that does is tell you that our Lord is very precise and very exact. It is the most exact prophecy in all of Scripture. Because he didn't want the Jewish people to miss his arrival. He wanted them to make sure they knew. Well, how else can they possibly know unless he gives them the beginning date and the exact number of days till Messiah, the prince, arrives and manifests himself in Jerusalem. That's why Jesus could say to them, if you had known on this day, you should have known. No excuse for you not to know. But you missed it. You missed the time of your visitation. So he prophesied what Daniel prophesied about the destruction of Jerusalem that would come from the prince who was to come, his people, Rome, and they did come in in 70 AD and plunder Jerusalem. Exactly as Daniel the prophet said. That's why Paul, in 2 Thessalonians 2, helps them understand that 
You're not in the day of the Lord because the Antichrist has not been revealed. If he's been revealed, you're in that day. But he has not. So that's why he tells them, remember, I've already told this to you. I've already explained this to you. And of course, we know from 1 Thessalonians, he didn't talk about the Antichrist in this detail. So he would have had to say something about him somewhere that's not recorded in 1 Thessalonians. But now in 2 Thessalonians, he's going to unfold it for them again. And he begins to give the characteristics of the Antichrist. And so he says these words, if you've got your Bible, go back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And we'll pick it up. Now that I've lost half of you and the other half of you are asleep. Okay, we have coffee for you afterwards to wake you up. He didn't want them to be deceived, verse 3. Let no one deceive you. So easily we're deceived. And the only reason we're deceived is because we don't know what the Bible says. If we know what the Bible says, we're going to be okay. If you know what God's word says, you're going to be good. But if you miss what God's word says, because Satan's going to come along and says, hath God really said? That's what he said to Adam and Eve, right? He just doesn't want you to become like him. See? And he was very masterful at deceiving people. So Paul says, I don't want you to be easily led astray. I don't want you to be misled. I don't want you to be deceived. That's why it's so important to know what God's word says. So he says, so it will not come, what won't come, the day of the Lord, unless the apostasy comes first. In other words, there's going to be the apostasy. So the very first characteristic, because everything he's going to say is centered on the Antichrist. So the very first thing he says is that his defection will be religious. His defection will be religious. Now, look, there's always been apostasy. People have always apostatized the faith. When you apostatize the faith, you defect from the faith. That is, you know what the truth is, but you turn and rebel against that truth and turn away from it. That's why the book of Hebrews, which by the way, we will be in on Sunday morning once again for the first time since Thanksgiving, but we'll be back into Hebrews, Hebrews 9 verse number 15 on Sunday. The book of Hebrews is all about the warning about people who know the truth, have heard the truth, maybe even embraced, professed that truth, but are in danger of falling away from what they know to be true. That's called apostasy. It's, it's people like you've known and I've known that, that they've made a profession of faith and they, maybe they walked an aisle, they were baptized in the church and they, they served in the church and they, they looked like everybody else in the church, but then one day they just turned their back on, on the faith, walk away from the faith. Want nothing to do with the church, want nothing to do with Christ, want nothing to do with his word, those people are apostates. They turn away from that which they know to be true. It doesn't mean they were once saved and lost their salvation, no. It means they were never saved to begin with, but they looked like they were. Because they had embraced to some degree the truth and got on the Jesus bandwagon. But when push came to shove, they walked away. 
So there's always been apostasy. Back in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 2, verse number 19. God says, your own wickedness will correct you, and your apostasies will reprove you. For you to forsake the Lord your God, and the dread of me is not in you, declares the Lord God of hosts. Why do people defect? They defect because the dread of God, the fear of God, is not in them. Remember what the Lord God said in Isaiah chapter 8, verse number 13, it is the Lord of hosts whom you shall regard as holy. He shall be your fear. He shall be your dread. Then he shall become a sanctuary for you. The only way God is a resting place for you, the only way God is a sanctuary for you is if you fear him, if you dread his holy name. That's why there's so much exhortation in Scripture to fear the Lord God of Israel. We talked about it on Sunday. Fear God, keep his commandments. That's it. It applies to every man. Well, those who are apostates don't fear God. And the Antichrist, he doesn't fear God. But he's not talking about general apostasy. He's talking about the apostasy. There's a definite article there. There is a certain apostasy that's going to take place. And it can only be done through this Antichrist. We know that in the tribulation, many who love the Lord, that love is going to grow cold. Christ said that in Matthew 24. And so they're going to turn away from the faith. Hebrews 10 talks about if you go on sinning willfully, right? There no longer remains a sacrifice for you. If, if you know the truth and yet you want to go on sinning willfully, even though you know what the truth is, there no longer remains a sacrifice for you because you've turned your back on that which you know to be true. Same is true about false teachers. In uh, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 20, for if after they have escaped the defilements or the pollutions of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first, for it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed down on to them. In other words, for a false teacher to have known the truth, they're involved in some kind of church ministry, but they're a false teacher because they want to escape the pollution of the world. And yet they become entangled in it once again because they can't get themselves out of it. Having become entangled in it again, it would be better for them never to have known the truth than to know the truth and walk away from it because there is a hotter hell for those who know the truth and walk away from it than to those who never heard the truth. And so you need to understand that. But that's not the apostasy the Lord's talking about. He's talking about the apostasy. Listen to what he says. He says, let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. This apostasy will be more horrific, more blasphemous, more unprecedented than any other apostasy that's ever been. Because it's the apostasy. And it's associated 
with the man of lawlessness. So the first characteristic for the Antichrist is his defection will be religious and his depravity will be relentless. He's called the man of lawlessness. We know that all sin is lawlessness, right? John tells us that in 1 John 3, verse number 4. This man has no regard for the law of God, none whatsoever. In fact, over in the book of Daniel, the 11th chapter, verse number 37, verse number 36, it says this, then the king will do as he pleases, this is the Antichrist, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things against the God of gods. And he will prosper until the indignation is finished. For that which is decreed will be done. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the desire of women, nor will he show regard for any other god, for he will magnify himself above them all. This is the Antichrist. He has no desire for women. Some believe that that refers to the fact that he'll probably be a homosexual. And that's not too far-fetched even in today's age to realize that. But he is so blasphemous. He speaks such arrogant words, such boastful words, that his apostasy is so great, he's described as the man of lawlessness. So Paul says, I don't want you to be deceived. I don't want you to be misled. There's going to come the apostasy. Now remember, this is going to happen midway through the tribulation. But the Antichrist rises to power because he is what they call the little horn of Daniel chapter 7. He rises to power out of obscurity. That's why in, in Revelation 6, he comes on a white horse because he's the man of peace, right? If he's going to somehow represent the prince of peace, the Lord Jesus, he has to masquerade as a man of peace. And so he comes on a white horse. He carries a bow but no arrows because he's going to gain the peace of the world. He's also on the red horse because he's a man of bloodshed. But all that happens in the first part of the tribulation, the first three and a half years. According to Daniel's prophecy, it's in the middle of that time in which the abomination takes place where the man of lawlessness is now finally revealed. In other words, he has been here. He just hasn't been revealed as the man of lawlessness yet. In other words, Paul says, look, until the man of lawlessness is revealed, until the apostasy happens, you're not, you're not in the day of the Lord. Remember, the day of the Lord is, spans the seven years. The great and terrible day of the Lord spans the last three and a half years. And this happens when the Antichrist sets himself up as God to be worshipped as God. And so Paul wants them to understand that there is going to be a certain kind of relentlessness about his depravity because he is a man who has no regard of God's law, none. You think he does because he's going to sell the Jewish nation that he's the Messiah. So he's going to prove to them that he loves the Lord God of Israel, that he is a follower of Jehovah. And they'll buy into that. The temple will be enacted. Sacrifices will come back again. 
But yet, he will be revealed as the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, or the son of perdition. He's the son of ruin, right? The son of ruin. There are two people called the son of perdition. One is Judas, and the other is the Antichrist. Satan would fill Judas's heart. Satan fills the Antichrist's heart. The Antichrist is a man who is demon-possessed. That's why he comes up out of the sea. He's a Gentile, and he comes up out of the abyss because he is demon-possessed. And so both Judas and the Antichrist are called a son of destruction or a son of perdition or a son of ruin. So not only is his defection religious, his depravity will be relentless, and his destiny is already determined because he's called the son of ruin, the son of destruction. Now, the difference between Judas and the Antichrist is simple. Judas was guilty of the great apostasy, but Judas betrayed the Son of God. The Antichrist sets himself out to be God. Big difference. Judas desecrated the temple when he threw the 30 pieces of silver down in it. But the Antichrist will desecrate the temple when he sets himself up to be God and demands that everybody worships him. When Judas went astray, he went astray without leading anybody else astray. But when the Antichrist goes astray and apostatizes the faith, he leads the whole world astray with him. Now, the unique thing about this is that this is all done under the control of the living God. The Antichrist doesn't rise to power unless the Lord lets him rise to power. He doesn't do anything unless the Lord grants him permission. I mean, Satan just can't do whatever he wants to do. He has to actually ask permission to do what he's going to do. In fact, if you go back in the Old Testament to the book of Zechariah, the 11th chapter, the Lord says this. Verse 15, Zechariah 11. Take again for yourself the equipment of a foolish shepherd. For behold, I am going to raise up a shepherd in the land who will not care for the perishing. Seek the scattered, heal the broken, or sustain the one standing, but will devour the flesh of the fat and tear off their hooves. Woe, cursed to the worthless shepherd who leaves the flock. A sword will be on his arm, and on his right eye, his arm will be totally withered, and his right eye will be blind. In other words, this is speaking of the Antichrist, the false Messiah, the false shepherd. The text says, I am going to raise up a shepherd in the land. God raises up the Antichrist. 
He has a very specific purpose. If you go back to the book of Revelation, the 17th chapter, in the 17th verse, it says this. Where it says in verse number 15, he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are the peoples and multitudes and nations and tongue. And the ten horns which you saw and the beast, these will hate the harlot and will make her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and will burn her up with fire. For God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose. There's going to be this 10-king confederacy. There's going to be this antichrist. They're going to burn up the harlot, the false prophet. Because the antichrist knows that just having military power, just having economic power is not enough. In order for the antichrist to control the world, he must have not just military power and economic power and political power, he must have what? Religious power. You can't rule the world unless you have religious power. And that's why he devours the false prophet, burns her up, and says, verse 17, for God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God will be fulfilled. That great. God has everything under control. God is going to raise up this false shepherd. And this false shepherd is going to have a strong arm and a keen eye, speaking of strength and intelligence, but he's going to cut off that arm. He's going to make that eye blind because that shepherd is going to be cursed. But that shepherd is going to fulfill his purpose. Because what's the purpose? The purpose was and is, and always will be, Israel. That's always been the purpose. I'm not offended by that. I relish that. Everything is for Israel. And so God has to fulfill his scripture, which is the salvation of Israel. Well, for that to happen, the time of Jacob's trouble must, must take place. Because in order for Zechariah's prophecy to be fulfilled, two-thirds of the Jewish nation has to be destroyed, be purged out, so one-third will go into the kingdom. This is all part of God's plan. So when you think about this, and now translate that into in today's world, and all that's happening in our country, do you know that's all in the direction of the living God? Nothing's happening that he hasn't given permission to happen, hasn't allowed to happen because he's still in charge. He's still on the throne. He's never stepped off the throne. And so uh, as bad as we think America is today, and it's getting pretty bad and it's going to get worse, God's got it all under control. God's in charge because there will be people in the tribulation who will wonder, wow, where is God in all this? What is happening here? Why are things as bad as they are? Why is this, this false Christ devouring people, killing people, wiping them off the face of the earth? It's all part of God's plan. And those who have the word of God, those who know the word of God, 
will be able to subject themselves to the sovereign plan of an almighty God who rules and reigns over everything. See, prophecy is very comforting because God's got it all under control. God made specific prophecies where the Messiah would be born, when the Messiah would die, where he would die, how he would die, how he would be betrayed. Everything was very precise because God wanted you to know that he was in charge of everything. That when Christ was crucified, it all happened under his direction. That's why Christ said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own initiative. This is what I'm going to do. I'll die on time. I'll die when I'm ready to die. I won't die until redemption has been accomplished. I won't die until it is finished. So much so that the prophecy was that not one bone of his would be broken. And when the Roman soldiers came to crush his legs because that would speed up death, they knew that he was already dead because he was in charge of everything that took place on Calvary. Because he's in charge of everything. Well, prophecy tells you this even all the more. It reiterates it in our minds that the Lord will allow the Antichrist to rise to power because he will be his shepherd. Like Cyrus was God's shepherd. The Antichrist will be God's shepherd because God has a plan. And the plan always runs perfectly on course and never deviates from his purposes. And that we can rest in, that we can trust in. And we can believe in that. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for tonight. A chance to spend a brief moment in your word, realizing the power, the power of your word. Realizing, Lord, the power of prophecy and how it is you laid things out for us just so that we would know what we need to know to give us encouragement for one more day, one more week, one more year knowing that, Lord, you're going to come again. We live in the light of that. We want that to happen. We can't wait for that to happen. And so we pray, Lord, that you would do the right thing because you are the righteous judge of all the earth. And so we affirm the fact that you are holy, you are true, you are just, and you are righteous. So no matter what happens in our life, Lord, You're the same righteous, true, and holy, just God, which will cause us to trust you even all the more until you come again as you most surely will. Until then, may we be found faithful. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.